Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Psychedelic Healing Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Cotto, a CRNA, aka nurse anesthesiologist, and co-founder, practitioner of Ketamine and Wellness Clinic of South Florida. Thank you so much for joining me here. We are to intersect psychedelics with traditional medicine to educate, empower, and find true healing for the mind, body, and spirit. I am so honored to introduce my very first guest, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller, PhD, who has been a clinical psychologist for 50 years, over 50 years, and he is a uh, host of my, he is the host of the podcast, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. The founder of the internationally acclaimed Cokenders Alcohol and Drug Program, as well as the creator of the Health Sanctuary at Wilbur Hot Springs in California. He has also been a faculty member at the University of Michigan and Stanford University, an advisor on the President's Commission on Mental Health, and the author of Psychedelic Medicine. He recently also published Psychedelic Wisdom and many more forthcoming books in the psychedelic psychotherapy and sex. He lives in Fort Bragg and in Wilbur Hot Springs of Northern California. Welcome, Dr. Miller. Oh, thank you, Sonia. Pleasure to be here. Yes, thank you so much. I have read your book back and forth. I love it. I love the conversations that you've had with all these wonderful, wonderful researchers that have been boots on the ground. And I love the new book that's coming out, Psychedelic Wisdom, where you're actually going to go even further to really the the culture and the history before, you know, because psychedelics have been around in plant medicine for years before we even were thought to exist, correct? So I love that uh, new book that's coming out. Um, I did want to start off with my first question really was what inspired you to get into the field of psychedelic research? I was a graduate student uh, in Michigan. I read about Leary and Alpert's work at Harvard. And Leary and Alpert published a book called The Tibetan Book of the Dead. And in the back of the book, uh, hidden in the back of the book, it said that if you ate a certain kind of morning glory seeds, you would have a full LSD experience. The two kind of morning glory seeds were heavenly blue and pearly gates. So I immediately went out and bought uh, every uh, morning glory seed in the city. And the next weekend, uh, my dear friend and I, also a graduate student, Alan Pinsens, we each uh, figured out a way to swallow 400 morning glory seeds, which was not an easy task. I had an amazing uh, LSD psychedelic experience, which really altered the course of my life. Uh, it was both a... Uh, uh, a very positive experience in which I felt a connection to all things human and non-human on the planet, it gave me a connection to nature that was deeper and richer than I ever had before, it gave me a sense of the world in a different way than I ever had before. I actually felt like I was transcended back to the beginning of time and in very rapid pictures I saw the development of humankind. I saw us coming out of the caves into villages, into towns that became cities, that then became counties, that then became countries. I watched this development over time, and I came to believe in the experience that all of this information is inside of all of us, that everything from the beginning to now is coded into us if somehow we figure out how to look deep enough inside ourselves. 
At the very same time, I had a very frightening experience. I was on laying on the floor and I suddenly got consumed with the possible with, with this banging. I was sure that that the police were banging on the door and they were going to come in and arrest us for taking this these seeds and eating them and that, that we were doing something wrong because I was such a good boy and I wanted so much in the world to do the right thing that doing something that was so offbeat like that was demonstrated to me was a lot for me to deal with. So I was so scared that the police were coming, they were going to take us away. Fortunately, I opened my eyes up finally and I looked out the window and there were two telephone linemen with hammers literally banging on the on the <laughs> banging on the walls and and so that taught me a lot it taught me about how vulnerable that we are in these psychedelic experiences and how fears that we have inside can get projected so the fear that i had that maybe I, that i was doing something so offbeat got projected that i might get the police were coming but when I heard this hammering stuff, though, that was a big lesson for the rest of my psychedelic experiences. But that was the beginning. And then a, a few years later, I was uh, teaching at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And a student gave me DMT, dimethyltryptamine. And I had a psychedelic experience. And then in the summer of 67, on a break from Michigan, I was living at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California. And a friend of mine flew over from Paris, uh, Mike Lionel Bloom, and he brought Sandoz LSD with him. And so I had my second LSD experience, only this time it was the real stuff. And once again, I had a dramatic experience, a tremendous amount of learning in a short period of time. And I was on the spot committed to being a psychonaut. But by that time, in 67, LSD had already been made illegal. It was made illegal in October of 1966. And so, once again, I had to deal with the fact that I was doing something that was illegal, which was uncomfortable for me. And that has been the case for the last 50 years because of the misguided, hypocritical position that our government has taken and making these substances illegal, which I believe may be even unconstitutional. Because, Sonia, I don't know if the government has a right to tell any of us what we can ingest in the privacy of our own homes as long as we don't impose what we ingested on another human being. Who has a right to tell you, Sonia, what you can eat and what you can't eat? I don't think the government does. But in any event, they've taken that position, and now we've been dealing with it for over 50 years. And as you pointed out in your introduction, it looks like we might be getting to a point where some of these substances are going to be either decriminalized, as they have been in Denver, Oakland, San Francisco, and the state of Oregon, or possibly even made legal. But... There's a lot of uncertainty about it because the Congress is certainly in a very different position than the rest of the country. I mean, 27 states have now have laws on marijuana 
that either medicinal or recreational or legal, but the federal government still classifies marijuana as an illegal drug. And anybody in this country can get arrested for its use, even if your local city or state uh, has decriminalized it. But that's a long-winded answer to your question of how it yeah. began for me. Oh, I love that story. But yeah, it's it's confusing to me why something that has been proven to have medicinal benefits and is still scheduled uh, schedule one, you know, with proven med medicinal benefits. Even when MDMA became illegal, the DEA pushed it forward, though all the research was shown that there were medicinal benefits, especially for PTSD. So I'm very excited that in the next year, I think we are going to get MDMA legalized for the treatment of PTSD and hopefully other diagnosis, but I know definitely for PTSD um, with all the hard work with Rick Doplin and MAPS. It looks like we're gonna we're approaching getting it through the FDA within a year. That is true. And how do you see as a practicing uh, psychologist, how do you see that really changing the future of mental health? The, the benefits of these psychedelics that we've learned about so far, psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, ketamine. Actually, MDMA and ketamine aren't classic psychedelics, but they're close enough cousins that we include them. The benefits are for a significant percentage of the population, but not for everyone, because there definitely are subgroups of people who should not take these medicines. And we're learning more and more all the time how to diagnose in advance so that those people who are not good candidates will not be taking them. At least they won't be taking them legally. It's very important when new medicines come into play that we don't allow our enthusiasm. And certainly I am very enthusiastic because I've been waiting a lifetime for these medicines to be allowed. But at the same time, I have to temper my enthusiasm and educate the public that these medicines are not for everybody and they're not panaceas. They are remarkable. They are outstanding at facilitating, but they don't do all the work. We still have to do the work. And more and more scientists around the country are coming to realize that these are medicines to be used in conjunction with psychotherapy so that you go into the psychedelic experience as if you're going into a personal gold mine and you spend the day in this gold mine grabbing nuggets and putting them in your little pouch. And then when the experience is over, you have the nuggets in your pouch and those are the nuggets that you work on in your weekly psychotherapy sessions with the professional therapist. And you polish them and you find out as much as you can about each of them. And then if you want to go back into the mine, you can go back into the mine again and either pull out some nuggets or maybe learn more about some of the nuggets you also took out. But it's not as though you go into the mine and then all of a sudden, that's it. And that's what's very important, a, a differentiation here. Because so often when something new comes down the pike, 
we think it's going to be, you know, the, the, like Ponce de Leon, the fountain of, of, uh, of youth, which he was looking for in Florida, by the way. <laughs> and, but that's, that's really not the case. And this is really important because with such enthusiasm, the, the public could get the wrong impression that, with, that this, these are panaceas. And what they are is facilitators. And in some cases, they really are instant cures of certain things, but only in certain very specific cases. And for the rest, it's business as usual. There's a lot of work to be done. No, I love that. That is perfect because that's what people s struggle with. They think that's all they need to do. They do the medicine, nothing else, and they're cured. And it's yeah. so far from that. Yeah. And I'll, I'll give you an example of, I have a, a, a classification that I've made up that I'm wanting to put out into the culture. Uh, it's a new diagnosis. It's called hypocrisy-induced neurosis. Hypocrisy-induced neurosis is when leaders say one thing and then they do the opposite, which twists the minds of young people. So if a person looks up to their minister or their priest and their minister or priest is carrying on against homosexuals and against amphetamines and drugs, and then the headline of the newspaper is that minister got caught hiring hookers and using amphetamines and making passes at young boys. That's an example of hypocrisy-induced neurosis because every one of their parishioners, especially the young, are thinking this man who's up there preaching is like close to God, and that's somebody we should follow. And he's saying these things are bad things and these things are good things, and then goes out in his own life and does the opposite of what he's preaching. It twists the minds of people. When congressmen scream about homosexuality, about what a terrible thing it is, and then those same congressmen are caught in a men's room giving a blowjob to a young boy, which has happened so, so many times, it's, it's beyond belief, that twists the minds of young people. The man was screaming one thing and he's doing the other. And I think that hurts the public at large and it, and it creates what I call hypocrisy-induced neurosis. I don't know that hypocrisy-induced neurosis is going to be cured by psychedelics. Psychedelics may give us insight into what's behind these people and to understand where they're coming from with their twisted minds that they act this way, but it doesn't reduce the impact of the twisted feeling. That's something we have to work on ourselves. And, and there are other examples of that. Psychedelics can be very good for treating anxiety, but we also have cases of people who have high anxiety who take psychedelics and their anxiety increases. And we must be mindful of that. One of the things I'm doing right now, Sonia, is I'm, I'm writing a book on adverse effects of psychedelics, the unwanted complications, because just as we have to be and want to be enthusiastic about the wonderful things that these medicines are bringing us, we also have to be mindful of what the unwanted complications are. We can't be like the big pharmaceutical companies who try to hide their unwanted complications and they sanitize them. They, they talk about their unwanted complications like, oh, they're side effects. 
That's a lot of baloney. They don't side effects. They don't happen on your side. When you get a negative effect, it happens on your whole body. But they call it side effects. You're gonna. You don't have to. You know, be concerned about it. For those of us in the psychedelic science, we have to do the opposite. Be totally transparent about any unwanted complications. Totally transparent about adverse effects, so that all the therapists know about these effects, and they're prepared for them, and that the patients know about them in advance, so they can decide in advance: Do they want to take the risk? Now, fortunately, in my interviewing scientists around the country, and I've started on this book. So far, what it sounds like is that these negative effects are a very tiny percentage, which is very fortunate. We're talking about so far two to four percent. But again, some people might say, "I don't know if I want to take that kind of risk for a two two to four percent negative effect." Right. So they know in advance what they're dealing with. Others what might kind of say, effects? What kind of effects? Yeah, what kind that you're seeing? Oh, those are that's a great question. Well, one I already mentioned. Instead of reduced anxiety, higher anxiety. Some people get destabilized, and they remain destabilized for periods. I know of a case where a woman became destabilized. And it lasted a couple of years with a lot of treatment, and the way the destabilization sometimes happens, Sonia, is if a person has had severe trauma in their earlier life, and this trauma got sealed off, repressed in Freudian terms, out of the consciousness, and let's say that person goes twenty, thirty, forty. Any number of decades, let's say forty years, and now they're forty-seven years old, and they take psychedelics, and during the psychedelic experience, that little compartment that was sealed shut opens up, and they see themselves getting raped at age four and a half. Tremendously frightening, terrifying. That kind of thing can be overwhelming, and can take a long time for the person to get back, because they they were not prepared. They had no idea that was lingering there, and they didn't go into the experience looking for that. Very different, Sonia, from say, a veteran with PTSD comes into a session. He or she knows in advance. That in this session they're liable to see some terrifying picture of a friend being blown up, or some terrifying picture of themselves flying through the air after being knocked out of a vehicle. So at least that those the vets know that they're liable to be confronting something like that. But for a regular person who has no idea that they've hidden something. For twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, or sixty years, to suddenly get confronted with it can be a great deal to deal with. So that's that's an example uh, in terms of what you're asking for. Mm -hmm. um, other effects: blood pressure and heart rate increase with some of the psychedelics, and so people who already have high blood pressure 
would not be candidates. These are the kind of things that experienced therapists know about, and they do extensive questioning before they take people in and accept them for psychedelic therapy. They know about the cardiovascular uh, effects. They know that people who have had serious psychological problems, better to wait until we have more research before seeing them. So we have both physiological reasons for asking people to wait and psychological reasons as well. Experienced therapists, people at the doctoral level are gonna know about this. Some people who are doing it underground, they may, some of them are extremely experienced, the underground people, and know about the things I'm talking about. Some of them are not, and they're gonna be, be overwhelmed themselves when these things happen. And that's another thing for the public to know about. Yeah, definitely. In yeah. Fact, I interviewed a priest who is actually, his name is Hunt Priest. And uh, he, he's over on the East Coast also. And he took his first psychedelic experience when he was 52 years old. He went his whole life thinking they were bad and had, you know, really bought into the government's disinformation campaign about them. But because of a friend, he took, his, he took it at, thir at 52 and he had a remarkably wonderful experience. And then, but he had a very hard time finding the right therapist that he trusted to take it with. And then, when he took it again two years later, once again, he had an extremely hard time. The first person he couldn't, for some reason, couldn't get to. And so what he did after these two ex uh, experiences is he started a national organization to help priests find psychedelic therapists that were really wow. credible. Isn't wow. That yeah. Yeah. Wow. He, he calls it the... Uh, the Christian Psychedelic Society. And it, it's strictly to help priests find credible psychedelic therapists. Oh, beautiful. I, I would like to think that the entire country and the world needs that resource, you know, because that integration is so important. You know, speaking on all these considerations, especially for those looking into it now, what are your feelings on how psychedelics should be administered professionally when someone, you know, is going to be a first-timer looking into it. What we're more and more coming to realize is that the old model, which was a session, let's say, on a Friday afternoon, a psychedelic experience on a Saturday, and an integration on a Sunday, is, uh, is, is, is no longer uh, the most effective, and it's out of vogue. And what we're moving towards now is three or four, or maybe more, but at least three or four sessions with the professional prior to the psychedelic experience, and then at least four or five or six minimum integration sessions. And I think that's going to eventually get stretched out in terms of the integration sessions thereafter. Uh, I think that three or four sessions beforehand will turn out to be adequate, but I'm speculating. But the post-sessions are going to be extended. And the reason for that, Sonia, is that if you really go into your gold mine and pull out some nuggets, you want to put in the time 
to really examine and shine up those nuggets and make the best use of them. And so I, the integration period is going to get extended. And why do you say so many sessions beforehand, three to four? Like what because, is covered in each? Because we're going to want to go deeper into the histories of the people to make sure they're the proper candidates. And we're also going to want to go deeper into what their intentions are. Because the more we can be clear on what the intentions are, the better the possibility that the person will get what they're looking for. So it's a combination of diagnosis, making certain as much as possible that the person is a proper candidate for such a powerful medicine, and also getting clear on what their intentions are, what they're looking for, what the mission statement is. Beautiful. And then during the session, are you holding space for them as well, doing psychotherapy or allowing them to be in their own space? Well, b both in that low dose psychedelics lend themselves more to conversational work back and forth with the therapist. High dose uh, psychedelics lend themselves to the person working introspectively and staying with their eyes closed or eye shades on for most of the session with a, with a certain amount of talking. So let's say in the first part, which I, we call psycholytic, conversational, of 100% of the time, maybe the mix is 70 or 80% conversational and 20, 30, 35% introspective with eyes closed. With the high dose, it's just the reverse. It's going to be more like 70, 75 or 80% inside, quiet, looking within the mine, uh, the, the gold mine, and 25% conversational. Very interesting. I like it that. Is. Yeah, it's very, they're very different. The two dosage is a critical variable in psychedelic science. Yes. And there is such thing as going too much. I, I know a lot of people try to be tough and try to say, oh, I can handle more. I can handle more. And uh, it's definitely not a, a realm that you want to get into with psychedelics. Oh, no. Being macho with psychedelic medicine mm -hmm. is silly. That It isn't like more is better. That's not the case whatsoever. In fact, for most people, the low dose psycholytic is much better because that's where you can work on your ego and on your communication and your fears and your anxieties. The high dose is cosmic, but you don't, it, and you go right into cosmic consciousness and you feel the, the, the oneness with God and with the universe, but you don't get to muck around in your own problems because you zoom right past your own problems way out into the cosmos. There, there's no own problems whatsoever. You're, you're gone. So for most people looking to enhance th themselves and deal with their own communications, their own anxieties, fears, depressions, relationships, the low dose stuff is where they want to do the work. And maybe with once in a while going up into the cosmos. Uh, you explained it so well. And you have so many amazing interviews in your book. Uh, I know Psychedelic Wisdom that just came out. I look forward to reading that. But Psychedelic Medicine is the resources that you provide, the interviews that you've had with everyone. It's 
it's uh, it was life changing for me, and I still use it as a resource guide. So thank you so much. Oh, Tanya, you're bringing tears to my eyes. I'm, <laughs> I'm so oh, I'm delighted that you've got so much from it. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely, and and it's it's important that it's there because people need that information, and that's why I'm here now is to bring that for everyone. You know, I know you have your own website, your own podcast. So you bring in lots of uh, more interviews. And I know that's where the book came from as well with all your interviews, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. Beautiful. So I definitely listen to that as well. And if anyone else is interested in learning more, definitely listen to there. Is there any other uh, resources that people can find you at? I think that if you go to mindbodyhealthpolitics.org, my archives are there. And by the way, my archives are open source, so there's no charge for them. People can listen to all the interviews anytime they want in their car, or their home, or walking while they're hiking and so on. And so uh, they're readily available. And uh, I'm really happy about that. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, thank you so much. I look forward to the next book and hopefully I'll get to meet you at some conferences here in the near future. And um, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you very much for being with me today. Opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.